2: Okay, all these names sound like soap opera, novella, male leads. <laughs> Vicente Larea,
0: Vicente Larea,
2: Díaz Ortiz.
0: Hello, and welcome back to She Builds Podcast, where we share stories about women in the design and construction field, one lady at a time. This season's theme is Living Legends, we will be talking about ladies who are alive and over 80 years of age, who have contributed to the profession and continue to inspire us to this day. Literally, living legends. Today, we're gonna talk about Tani Zvalo, a Dutch architect who spent most of her career in Latin America, and today is 81 years old. I'm Lizzie Rar, and I just finished All In, the autobiography of Billie Jean King in San Francisco, and I'm joined by my fellow co host Jessica and Nurjiri.
3: Hello, I'm Nurjiri Rivas, working on a deadly education by Naomi Novik, coming to you from Houston, Texas.
2: And I'm Jessica Rogers, finishing up Atomic Habits by James Clear, based out of Miami, Florida. It's time for our disclaimer. The three of us are not experts on this subject. We are just sharing stories about the information that we find. So if we get our facts a little mixed up, please forgive us, leave us a comment, and we will all continue learning.
0: Okay, ladies. This week, we're back in the Netherlands. Tani Zvalo was born on February 1st, 1942, in Amsterdam. Her family lived in Rondweig, a suburb of Amsterdam, which is actually right next to the Bos that Jakob Mulder worked on in episode 86. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Like in this connection. Yeah, I like that we're going back
2: to the Netherlands.
0: Yeah. So, Tawny was born right in the middle of World War II, and their house was near the airport, which got bombed a lot. But luckily, the war ended in 1945, and her father decided that they wouldn't talk about it anymore, and they would move forward. She has very fond memories of them renting a house in the coastal town of Kastrikum and spending the summer at the sea. She said that it was the first time she experienced a sense of well-being and freedom. Now, this feeling
3: I can totally relate to. I, too, feel like outside myself when I'm at the beach, there's something special about summer in the sea.
0: Yeah. Tani was the third of four girls. Her mother was Alida Wittmann, and her father was Marinas Zvolo, a goldsmith. Her father was a third-generation goldsmith, And Marinus remembers his dad teaching him how to make a mug out of a copper plate. He went to the Amsterdam Quellinus School, which today is the Gerrit Rietveld Academy. He finished his schooling in only four years, which was very fast. So when he was 16, he went to the Academy of Art in Den Haag for a year. But he decided that he wanted to learn from experience rather than school.
3: There's a lot of merit in that. It saves a lot of money, too. True.
0: Also,
2: considering that he finished the first school quickly and he was young at that, why not try alternative ways of learning?
3: Yeah. Also, that academy sounds familiar. Did one of our karyatids go there?
2: Mm, I'm not sure, but I think the name sounds familiar because one of our ladies knows Kedit. Maybe Jacobo or Ham or Han.
0: Right. Yeah. So we have talked about Gerrit Rietfeld before. Uh, on the Hans Schroeder episode, mm. because he designed the Schroeder house with Hans' mom. There you go. Right? Right. Yeah, yeah, of course. Episode 13. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Martinus and his friend Nico Wittmann left for Munich in 1920, and he continued to travel around Europe and work for the next 10 years. He worked in Munich, Brussels, Antwerp, Paris, and Louvain. In Antwerp, he forged copper canopies for the St. John Church in Valwijk by hand, which are still there today. Whoa,
3: gotta love how you leave a lasting legacy through the built environment. That sounds amazing.
2: Agreed. It must have been cool, too, to just be able to travel and perfecting your
0: craft. Yeah. 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 With war on the horizon, Marinas went back to the Netherlands and opened a studio with his father and uncle in Amsterdam. They were able to work until 1941 when a bomb fell on their street and destroyed the studio. Marinas was now married with two kids and another one on the way. So they moved to the suburbs to the house in Ronvike, where Tawny was born.
2: Yikes. That's awful.
0: I hope he was able to at least
2: move his business or start anew, continuing to work on his craft. He seemed to be really passionate about it.
0: And he got mouths to feed now. Yeah, yeah. it sounds like the business kind of petered out just because there wasn't a lot of work for them to do during the war, Mm. so it was a little bit of a tough time for them. Mm. But all this backstory is to say that Tani was greatly influenced by her father's creativity and says that he taught her everything she needed to know about art. After World War II in 1949, Marinus became a teacher at the School for Arts and Crafts, or the Gerrit Riefeld Academy in Amsterdam, where he had studied. Cool. Nice. Yeah. So in 1954, Tani started going to a secondary school in Amsterdam. She was familiar with the city since her parents had both gone to school there, and since her parents both really loved art, they would take the family into the city for cultural outings. Concerts, films, museums, etc. And while they were in Amsterdam, her dad would always point out the architecture of the old city to her. That sounds like fun.
3: Totally. It sounds like a lovely upbringing, especially after that
0: very rough start she had.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. When Tani was 15, she and her older sister, Mariana, went to Paris to sketch. Her dad had traveled to learn more about art, and so his kids decided to do the same. She and her older sister hitched a ride from a truck driver in Alkmaar and made it all the way to Paris. They visited Les Halles, the big market hall in Paris. The market was a large glass and iron structure designed by Victor Baltard in 1854. The design was torn down in the 70s, sadly, but it made a big impact on Tawny seeing this large covered market space for all the stalls and the vendors.
3: It's crazy to me how the world worked not too long ago. Like today, a 15-year-old hitchhiking to another country for fun. Not going to happen, I don't think. (laughs) But (laughs) glad that she got this experience and saw beautiful architecture before it was torn down.
2: Um, I'm stuck at the part where you said she was going to Paris to sketch. When I was 15, I would ask my parents to take me places to sketch too. But you know where I went? Like the park, maybe a museum, the beach. Not a whole other country. And hitchhiking, like, for real? Thank God for ride shares and public transportation. But mm, I just, I couldn't see it happening today.
3: (laughs) Also, can we talk about how Europe has such beautiful markets? Mm -hmm. It's just something I don't think we see on this side of the world. Yeah. Like, the gorgeous ones that we visited in Spain? Yeah. Amazing. Mm. But I couldn't help myself, and I Googled the hell. It has a history, and the revitalization efforts remain controversial to this day. It's interesting. If y'all look it up later, I recommend.
2: So, Nujiri, we do have a few markets, but I feel like there are few and far between. I can think of Washington, D.C. Um, there's the union market there. Seattle has one, but nothing compares to the European markets. So, you're right about that.
3: Mm, I should check those out.
0: Yeah. So I mentioned that Tani's father got a job at the School of Arts and Crafts, but the school soon outgrew the building that they were in. So they hired Gerrit Rietveld to design them a new academy for the capital, which is why it's now called the Gerrit Rietveld Academy of Art. He designed a two-story modern factory-like glass building.
3: I already know I'll probably like this building a lot. I had been wondering why it's (laughs) called Gerrit Rietveld Academy. I thought maybe he bought it. Or gave a huge donation, but this explanation is a lot more fun.
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Now, he was an architect, and I think you would like this building for sure, because uh, Heret was a part of the De Stiel movement, and we
0: like that. Enough said. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) So in these years, the school's professors were well-known artists and professionals. Basically, the education was top-notch during the 50s and 60s. Heret's son Jan Rietveld and Aldo van Eyck were also teaching in the Interior Architecture Department. They taught night school. Marinas was close with both of them and with Gerrit. Gerrit asked Marinas to draw up a design for new workbenches for the school. By this time, Tani was studying at TU Delft, and her dad wrote to her saying, I've got a great project for you. Help me design these workbenches and make a drawing for it.
2: I'm here for the father-daughter collabs. Cute. Yeah. Cute. I'm also, like, into this name-dropping that's going on. Just, like, Han, Aldo Van Eyck. Oh, man, it must have been so cool to see all of these, like, new developments and redevelopments of the school.
0: Yeah. So, in 2001, when Tani went to visit the school, they were still using these workbenches that she had helped design. Sadly, I don't have a photo of it. I tried to look it up, but I couldn't find anything. But it sounds like the design was a good one that held up.
3: Bummer that we don't have pics today, but cool that they lasted so long.
2: I do wonder if maybe they're preserved somewhere. Like, not at the school, but like in a museum or something.
0: That'd be nice. Maybe. Okay. So in 1960, Tawny enrolled at TU Delft to study architecture. Now, the university had been closed during World War II, obviously. But Tawny said that after it reopened, the atmosphere was kind of stale. Everyone was really poor, so the students had pretty meager accommodations, and the teaching felt old-fashioned. It sounds like the city of Delft itself hadn't really bounced back the way that other cities like Amsterdam had. Mm. And she missed what Amsterdam offered culturally. So, in short, she was a bit disappointed at TU Delft because she thought it would be this exciting time, setting her up for a future career. But instead, she said it felt, quote, «provincial and narrow-minded».
3: Tani needs to transfer ASAP. Mm
2: -hmm. I mean, World War II was a big thing, so it's understandable, the rebuilding of it all. But yeah, homegirl needs to change ASAP.
0: She was on a scholarship there and also had summer jobs to make things work for her. She spent the summers of 1962 and 1963 in Spain with Mariana, and she also went to Den Haag to take oboe lessons in her spare time and took night classes at the Rotterdam Academy of Art. She said these things helped her keep her artistic, creative spark alive.
3: Lovely! I like that she's making time
0: to feed her artistic soul.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's good that she was able to find that outlet.
0: Yeah. She returned from Spain in 1962 and took her sketch portfolio from the summer to show her professor, and he was not impressed at all. Tani was starting to realize that she wanted to create vernacular architecture that spoke to its natural surroundings. She was fed up with Delft and was thinking about going to Japan, but then she read an article in a magazine about a school building project in Mexico with a black and white photo of a prefab school building. She immediately wrote a letter in Spanish to the Mexican Secretary of Education, Dr. Jaime Torres-Bodet, who had written the article and applied to be a trainee student. Yes! (laughs)
2: <laughs> there is so much that I love about this. Mind you, there is an internet. So Tani sought this out. Like she looked for it. This also reminds me a little bit about Charlotte Perrion, episode 42, who is also interested in some of the same stuff as Tani. And she would go to Japan, unlike Tani. But what's going on in Mexico also sounds really cool.
0: Yeah. She got a response from the director of CAPFCE, Comité Administrador del Programa Federal de Construcción de Escuelas, saying, come on down. Mm-hmm. So Tony decides to leave Delft and head to Mexico at 22 years old. Ándale! Good for you, woman! <laughs> <laughs> Arriba! In October 1964, she traveled from Antwerp to Houston on a cargo ship and then took a plane to Mexico City. It was her first time flying.
3: Oh, hey! She was in my neck of the woods for a hot second, but still.
0: a <laughs> like, a cargo ship?
2: Didn't one of our ladies travel by cargo ship?
0: Yeah, well, Ruth Shellhorn in episode 62 took a mailboat from the <laughs> East Coast to the West Coast, and it went through the Panama Canal. <laughs> Okay, yeah, something like that. (laughs) Yeah, Just to go home. Yeah. (laughs) You know? (laughs) The first three months, she worked at a construction office in Mexico City so that she could learn the language before heading over to CAPFCE. So she worked at the office of Luis and Bernardo Calderón Cabrera. She learned the terminology she needed and also to create precise drawings and count quickly in Spanish.
2: yeah 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 yeah, 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 yeah.
0: During these months, she also took Mexican history classes at UNAM. She visited Teotihuacan, the Zocalo, and the National Museum of Anthropology, which had just opened that year. Which we've gone to, guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. She was struck by how the Spaniards had tried to erase the indigenous cultures and how much was lost. Preach, Tawny.
2: What I'm sensing are some throwback. Photos. Okay, listeners, we know about the UNAM from some of our previous ladies, like Concepcion, episode 16, or even Clara Porset, episode 67. And we've also had, like Lizzie said, we've had our share of arc ventures, like Tommy. We too have been to Teotihuacan and Zocalo. This also reminds me of Yasmin and her preservation efforts. Not in Mexico, but you know what I mean.
0: All right, so what's
2: going to happen next? Yeah. Like all these connections.
0: After three months, she went to the CAPFCE office and did a month of prep before being sent to the state of Talcala. A friend invited her to Oaxaca, and she was so taken with it that she asked for a transfer to Oaxaca in 1965.
3: Y'all, I keep hearing good things about Oaxaca. I should put that on my travel list.
0: Yes, mm-hmm. me too. I really want to go. Have you been? No. no, but I like I the same thing. Everyone says that it's so great and the food is amazing. Okay, that's what I was gonna say. All I could think about is like the cheese. <laughs> Our next business trip. <laughs> well, that's also where mole is from.
2: Yeah. Oh, uh, not a fan of mole. Me neither, but I would try it because
0: I bet you, if I'm gonna try,
2: I have to try it there.
0: Okay. Right. The schools she worked on were in small, rural, mountainous, indigenous villages. The first thing she had to do was work with the community and local authorities so that they were on board with the project. Then they chose a site for the school. Some villages only needed a one-room classroom, and others needed many rooms for all the kids in the village. She designed her schools around playground patios and tried to work with the surrounding natural landscape when she could. On October 3, 1966, the school, 3 de Octubre, in Miahuatlán, was opened by President Díaz Ordaz himself.
3: This is great! Working in schools feels like an instant reward, that your work is actually producing something good in the world. And then also having a chance to work with the communities
2: all around lovely. Yes, it's a mixture of community design and education. I also just like the name, the date that it opened. so beautiful.
0: Yes. She spent the next few years designing and building 35 schools throughout Oaxaca. Also, at some point, she meets another architect named Martin Ruiz Camino, and they have a daughter named Paulita in the late 60s. Paulita, pero que cute. Ay, ay, ay. Que cute. Meanwhile, she was also writing back and forth with the faculty at TU Delft, trying to finalize her thesis project. She suggested a marketplace for an indigenous village. Up until that point, TU Delft had not allowed students to do a thesis project in a foreign country for whatever reason. Cornelius Van Estren was very rigid about this. But when Aldo Van Eyck took over he decided that it was all right.
3: You know, I was just wondering, like, this lady ever graduate? But okay, right? (laughs) I'm glad that she finally found a forward thinker willing to work with her for her to follow her own career path.
0: Yeah.
2: (laughs) I had no idea that she was still continuing her college studies. (laughs) I thought she, like, gave that up a long time ago.
0: It's dedication, baby. Yeah. Yeah. In 1970, Tani put together an exhibition of her thesis project, a market for Otavalo in Ecuador. The exhibition featured black and white photographs of the market traders she had met there, along with scale models of the proposed market. The exhibition was called 90 Parasols. Her design showed clusters of parasol coverings made of reinforced concrete interspersed with 14 cypress trees in the square. The parasol groupings have poles between each parasol made of guadua, which is similar to bamboo. The poles allow vendors to hang things on them for display. And each parasol also has a low block around it that can be used as seating or to spread out and display merchandise. I'll include photos of the models in the show notes.
3: <gasps> How inventive. I like these projects that are
2: doable. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't wait to see photos. Did anybody else catch the poeticism that her thesis would be a market? And in the beginning of this story, Tawny was gallivanting through Europe, sketching markets.
0: Beautiful. hmm Next, Tawny went to acquire funds to actually get this market built. Yeah! Yeah! <laughs> she went to Den Haag to the technical aid service and was approved for 100,000 guilders to build the project. The more difficult task was convincing the Ecuadorian authorities. Luckily, she had a very clever ally in the mayor of the town of Otovalo, Vicente Larrea, who lobbied for the project and helped get the approval of the government.
2: Wonderful! That's so amazing! Also, getting your thesis built and to have the mayor on your side, like, beyond impressive.
0: Right? Right? Part of the beauty of Tani's design was that it could be built by unskilled workers and they could hire local people to help with the construction. However, anthropologists in Quito protested the fact that a foreign architect was coming in to build this project and tried to stop it. Tani organized a meeting with the indigenous market vendors to ask their opinion on the subject. They all answered saying that they loved the design of the market and wanted the work
1: to continue.
0: Tawny noted that the market improvements gave the local vendors a boost in self esteem.
1: Hey, designers and curious minds. Ever wondered about the stories hiding within your building's walls? I'm Carrie Seaburn, structural engineer and host of Unstruct, the podcast that decodes and simplifies major concepts of structural design. Behind the math and physics, structural engineering simply predicts building behavior. Join me as we simplify the complex making structural design accessible to everyone.
3: Nowadays, instead of measuring it via cost, we're saying, well, what about carbon, you know? We've got two levers now that we can, if if an architect has an inefficient design,
2: we can hit them with two levers if you like. (laughs) (laughs) The official casualty figure is 55,000. Everybody I talked to told me that the actual figure is at least three times as much and I believe that. I mean, seeing what I saw, Turkish codes are good, and, and they have been improving, but compliance was completely lacking.
1: Fluent in steel, concrete, masonry, and timber design, I'll bring you leading engineers to dissect the tales behind their building structure. Whether you're an architect, contractor, engineer, or just love a good story, this podcast is for you.
2: Yeah, beam penetrations, that's a fun topic on this project.
1: Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Unstruct. From within your walls, hear the story behind how your building stands today.
3: Turn your architectural designs into stunning, immersive experiences
0: with Enscape. This innovative tool integrates seamlessly with your design software to bring your ideas to life in real-time 3D and VR. With Enscape, you will experience instant rendering, have the ability to make design changes on the fly, and present your projects in stunning detail. Ideal for architects,
3: designers, and anyone passionate about visual storytelling in architecture. Dive into a new era of design visualization with Enscape.
0: Visit Enscape3D.com to learn more. The market opened on December 2nd, 1972.
3: Y'all, this is starting to feel like a secondary theme this season. Like, all the participatory design and empowering people through construction that we've been hearing about, Mm. maybe we can discuss it further in the wrap-up so that we don't take time today. But— I see why some people felt like stranger danger when Tawny arrived with her plans, mm-hmm. but I'm glad that she found a way to get the people involved and that she listened and that the project got built.
2: Yeah. You know, I've actually seen this come up in conversations with other architects, like these international architects come in to like build something, Um or that foreign architects go to build in this local town, but none of the like local architects are selected for these projects. And these international big firms, sometimes they get a bad rap, and for good reason, because sometimes they don't understand the local culture, the architecture, or the aesthetic, and not providing you know equal opportunity for the local architects. And the list can go on and on, but in this case, Tani did it right or she did it the right way, by reaching out to the locals and working with them and talking to them and making them feel more comfortable of what she was doing.
0: Agreed. Yeah, I think it's all about how you approach it, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And in retrospect, we can see that the market was a great addition to Otavalo and helped increase the financial intake of the vendors and also sparked tourism to the town and in turn the vendors. Tony's thesis had asserted that a small amount of effort in building these improvements to the market square would help pull the locals out of financial hardship and the results proved this.
3: Ooh, we got to put this on the Arc Venture
0: list, right?
2: Mhm. We have to see this success for ourselves. Yeah. In 1974
0: and 1975, Tony wrote a book called Fantasy and Architecture. She put together photographs, drawings, and wrote down her theories and ideas. She would talk about female architecture versus male architecture. She says, Whereas modern architectural forms respond to and keep pace with the advancing technology, I myself feel the need to gain a better understanding of primal forms. Her book and the conclusions talk a lot about how, when designing a house or the desire for a house and a resting place, can be connected to natural instincts and surroundings and the relationships between mother and child, and man and woman.
3: Hmm. It sounds like she's exploring a lot of topics. It was hard to condense. I like that. Yeah. Well, I'll say that I like that she places a lot of importance in exploring and understanding nature and going back to the basics. New technology is important too, of course, but we gotta have a foundation in the basics.
2: Yeah. It's also interesting to me how she describes spaces and concepts to be rooted in nature and these, like, connections with primal needs, with architecture. Some of her stuff is a little weird, but I can understand where she's coming from.
0: Yeah. In 1975, Tony bought a property from a woman in the town of Tebotsatlan. She had often visited the village on weekends from Mexico City and thought it was a great place to live and for Paulita to go to school. It was still pretty safe and Paulita could walk to school. So she bought half of a property from a woman in town and designed a house for her, Paulita, and Martin. The house was split in two with a studio for Tony and Martin at one end, a playroom for Paulita on the other side, and a kitchen and dining room in the middle. Interesting. Smart way to organize the program of the home.
2: Yeah. Also, another architect designing their own home. Love to see it.
0: Right? Also, for context, ladies, Teboslan is just northeast of Guadalajara, where we've been before. Mm -hmm. Ah, then the weather would be perfect. Very nice. The house was built with red brick, wooden beams, and a tile roof. This set it apart from the other buildings in the area, and it was called the European House. They lived in the house for four years, and Tony gave birth to two sons, Cristobal and Antonio, while they lived there.
3: Well, so much for context. I didn't see that coming.
0: Right. (laughs) During these years, Tony and Martin were asked to work on a project that would see the Santa Carolina Convent in Oaxaca converted into a hotel. They worked to keep the integrity and the atmosphere of the original convent in their redesign and restoration of the building. They added a swimming pool to the courtyard, but maintained the patios, which let fresh air and light into the building. Tani also suggested that the decor of the hotel be products of the local indigenous artisans. The hotel was opened on May 19, 1976.
3: Yes, this is the context that I'm talking about.
2: (laughs) This reminds me of episode 33, Lady Mary Elizabeth Jane Coulter. Okay, she was the architect and educator that lived in New Mexico. She was also known for her architecture, But she, like Tani and her hubby, they used a lot of materials that were native to the land. And they would also hire local artisans to provide like an authentic look to whatever it was that they were building.
0: Yeah. A year later, the hotel won the Prix Triomphe Award by the Committee of European Excellence. Ooh,
3: get your fancy awards on!
0: <laughs> Prix Triomphe.
2: Prize triumph, Or Triumph prize? I don't know. It's Trey Fancy, I could tell you
0: that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Tani wanted to move somewhere with better schools for the boys and heard about a bilingual school in Lomate Kokuyok. In 1985, she found two parcels of land— in Guatepec, one town over from Cocuyoc, and purchased them. On one parcel, she built a studio, and on the other, she built a two-story family house. Each of the kids got their own room. The boys were on the first floor, and she and Paulita were upstairs. The kids helped her design the house using Playmobil toys.
3: (laughs) This is next-level participatory design, children edition.
0: Right? (laughs) A little too much. In 1990, Tani was asked to design another market for Tlacolula in the state of Oaxaca in Mexico. While studying the area for design, she ended up looking at the entire Valley of Oaxaca and organized an exhibition called The Lost Paradise, Architecture and Ecology in the Valley of Oaxaca. The exhibition showed 38 color photographs of the landscape and people of Oaxaca. The exhibition traveled around the world, to the Netherlands, and it even went to Texas and Michigan in the U.S. Aye! That must have been so beautiful.
2: I hope these markets still exist today. They sound really nice.
0: Yeah, from what I can tell, they still exist. Mm. Tani ended up designing two different markets. Tlacolula has an everyday market where general goods are sold in the city, but on Sundays, indigenous people from the surrounding areas make their way to the city to sell their products. She designed a new Sunday market in the square next to the church, surrounded by four trees. The daily market was built on the site of a school that had outgrown the building. She created a two-story design with ground floor vendors that faced the streets and vendors that faced the inner courtyard. Ooh, fancy. We're going next level. A two-story market? Yeah. Dang. Tani served as a consultant for special projects for the state of Oaxaca from 1996 to 1999. She and a group of architects were tasked to design and build recreation parks for the growing population. They didn't have a lot of money at their disposal, so they had to get creative. Over the years, they built several projects, including swimming pools, tourist villages, a sports field, park, and footbridge. This sounds
2: cool, and it sounds like a really cool group to be a part of. Yeah. You're
0: designing all the fun stuff. Unfortunately, that's all the info I have on Tawny's life. Yeah. I don't really have any info in the last two decades, sadly. Most of the info that I got came from a book that she wrote in 2005 called Blue is My Color, Designing as an Answer to Nature. (laughs) It is a book of essays about her life and work. And the book also has a documentary film along with it, but I could not figure out a way to watch it, unfortunately. The website link didn't work. Mm. I know. Oh, that kind
3: of sucks. Yeah. Well. I will say that that's pretty special that you got to read mm-hmm. her book. Like, in a way, it was her memoir, her story told by her. Yeah. That's a Shebo's podcast first. And what better source than that, you know? I'm happy that Latin America proved to be where Tani could best use all of her talents. And I'm so glad that she fought for what she believed in through design and was able to write a book to give people like us a chance to learn from her today.
0: Same.
2: Yes. I would love to find a way to watch this documentary. And I want to get my hands on these books that she has written and look at some of these photographs that she has included. Mm
0: -hmm. What I do know through this book is that Tawny continued to travel around the world with her children and returned to some of the places that she visited when she was young, like France, Spain, and the Netherlands. She's still alive today at 81 years old.
3: Lovely. Maybe. Just maybe. Maybe. She is relaxing as we record this podcast. (laughs) And maybe she's still traveling for fun, sketching without any responsibility, possibly hitchhiking.
2: Well, what I was about to say was maybe, since we don't know what she's doing in the last, you know, two decades or whatever, maybe she really is playing bingo somewhere. Or, like No says, she is most likely sketching. That's what I'd like to believe.
0: Yeah, that sounds nice. Mm -hmm. All right. Now we've reached the second half of our episode, the caryatid. This is where we select a woman living today who's doing her thing, furthering the profession, and whose work continues to hold the profession up, just like the caryatids or columns shaped like women found on Greek style buildings. So without further ado, this week's caryatid is. <laughs> Fernanda Canales! Whee! Fernanda. Fernanda is a Mexican architect originally from Mexico City. She studied at Universidad Iberoamericana and graduated in 1997, winning the award for Best Thesis. She also received a master's from the Polytechnic University of Barcelona and a PhD in architecture from the Higher Technical School of Architecture of Madrid. Hot dang! This lady's done a lot. Okay, Best Thesis. Right? Fernanda has focused on residential architecture, including low-income housing. Her projects are often awarded by government agencies or local charities. Some are pro bono and some are paid contracts. She has stated that low budget is pretty much the only thing that differentiates social housing from private housing. Her pro bono projects often don't have money to pay consultants and are built by non-experts with community involvement.
3: To say the difference between social housing and private housing is money sounds like the biggest duh ever. But it's actually a deep statement, I think. Yeah. The general program of a house is the same no matter what. Then the only thing left to do is figure out how do we achieve that with this budget. I'll say, this reminds me about a social housing project I saw when I was doing an architecture program in high school. Back home, we have social housing that has a very iconic look— When you see it, you know what it is. So there can be a stigma about that architecture sometimes. So a town hired an architect to design a new model with the same budget so that people wouldn't immediately know, yeah, that's government housing. The result looked like really similar to beach apartments in a wealthy community. Mm. Mm. And it made us all think how, in that instance, the architecture was kind of an equalizer when it's usually not. Right. And mm. kind of unrelated, but are rich people getting ripped off with expensive homes that turned out to be not so expensive to build?
2: <laughs> I don't know.
3: <laughs> TBD. Sorry, I really digress there, but there's like a lot to unpack there. Yeah.
2: There is. Um, but, no, Judy, I think expensive homes are expensive because they, they are expensive to, to make. And, um, I don't think it's so much that they're getting ripped off. I just think it could be a lot of other things. The land, the client, like anyway. Um, but I will say that you do bring up a good point of perhaps. I think maybe a systemic way of like classism perhaps. Like it seems extreme and when I think about it, I get I feel disappointed because it makes me think if one architect with the same budget can create something beautiful and the other creates something oppressive because they believe that income or social housing means a certain aesthetic versus what just creating housing in general for people and make it beautiful. You know, like that's the part that makes me kind of sad. Same budget, different lying things. Anyway, I do like that Fernanda's projects are government and local charity-backed projects, though. So, on a positive note, I'm hoping she's creating beautiful work.
0: (laughs) Right. Well, one of the other main focuses of her design is flexibility. Mm. You never know what the building will become or who uses it later. She says, they need to be projects that can take that level of unexpected. She has been researching Mexican housing architecture and written several books about it. She says, how do you define luxury and give the same privileges to all in low-income housing? Luxury is light, air, space. It is not about the expensive kitchen or imported woods. It is about understanding the quality of shade or a tree. And that can be accessible to all.
3: Mm. Exactly. Yeah, that's what I was trying to say earlier, but so much less eloquently. (laughs) I get you, Fernanda. (laughs) I can see how both Tani and Fernanda invest so much time and energy into really understanding communities Mm. and the implications of their designs. I'm glad that we get to learn about both of them today.
2: Yes. I also like this this sentiment, this quote, defining luxury, but give the same privilege to all in low-income housing. I feel like there's a lot to unpack there, but it seems like a cool thing to explore, Especially when we think of affordable housing today and just housing in general. Like, it's
0: cool stuff. Yeah. There's a lot to unpack there, and there was a lot more in this article that I was reading. But, you know, I had to keep it concise. But Fernanda sounds like she's doing a lot of really interesting stuff. So. Cool. Cool. Okay. Before we say goodbye, we want to say thank you to CMYK for the music and thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed learning about Tani and Fernanda along with our banter and that you're inspired to find out more about them and other amazing professional ladies. Again, thank you.
3: Shiva's podcast is a member of the Gable Podcast Network, and Gable Media is all about building a better world. Listen and subscribe to all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-media.com.
2: Please let us know what you thought of our episode. If you've enjoyed it, please help us spread the word. Tell your friends, your neighbors, your communities, your sketchers, your dads, your iron workers, your Oaxacans, your Cuernavacans, your Teotihuacanes. Tell them to give us five stars on iTunes. Write us a review. This will all help us reach a wider audience and for more people to learn about these amazing ladies with us.
0: We are excited to hear from you and for you to come back and keep learning about bosses with us. You can email us your thoughts at shebuildspodcast at gmail.com. Leave a comment on our website, shebuildspodcast.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at SheBuildsPodcast and on Twitter at shebuildspot. Tot ziens. Adios! Ciao! Marianne, went to cri- went to Paris. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I have no idea what I was going to say. <laughs> I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects